welcome to a remote episode of One Great History. I'm Sabrina. And I'm Alex. And we are without our producer Nick today. Yeah, poor Nick's got got the COVID. But instead we've replaced him for one episode <laughs> only. <laughs> Uh, with a special guest, Melanie Gall, who wrote a book about Deanna Durbin. For those who haven't heard the name, Deanna Durbin was a Hollywood actress in the 1930s until her retirement in the 1940s. She was at one point the highest paid woman in America, and she helped save Universal Studio from bankruptcy. And most importantly for us, she is from Winnipeg. So here's that interview with Melanie now. My name is Melanie Gall. I'm from St. Albert, Alberta. I live between Alberta and New York, and I'm a performer, a music historian, and now I'm an author, I suppose. And it's a great book. I really liked oh, it. thank you for reading it. Yay! <laughs> you also have done, like, some historical songs, because we met at a fringe show about Prohibition music, which is really fun. Yes. Um, I mean, what I do as a career foremost is I do go around writing shows, producing them, and they're they're all based around historic music. So I do have a show about the music of Deanna Durbin. I toured that to Winnipeg in, in 2019. And the most recent was a show about Prohibition and the Lost Songs. And next year, I don't know, I've got a few ideas. Something, something will happen next year. I'll well, you had one show. on knitting music, too. Yes. Yes. On that what one. kind of music? knitting songs like songs about oh. knitting from world war one and world war two um i did that in 2014 in winnipeg and it was fun um that year one of the audience I, I knit during the show and one of the audience members stopped the show and you know how closely things are timed from the fringe yeah and she stopped the show walked up to the stage she's like let me show you how to do it i'm like but i, I don't oh know. no <laughs> so now i no longer knit during the knitting show <laughs> Someone no. had opinions. Oh no. So people have opinions. And people still remember that. They're like, remember during the knitting show? I'm like, yes, I do. <laughs> oh, but no. um, oh, yes, God. yes, there's the knitting show too. It would be fun to bring that back to Winnipeg, but also new show would also be fun. So Yeah, it's really, really interesting. And then yeah, you wrote a book about Deanna Durbin. Yes, I did. During the pandemic. <laughs> we were all stuck inside, right? And I, I had all the research. I I had sort of thought that one day I might want to write a book about Deanna Durbin because nobody has. I mean, there's a few self-published books about her movies, but there is but they're no biography. Not, no, they're not super fleshed out. No, not at all. Not at all. And so I thought, okay, at some point I'm going to do it. And, you know, after shows, you say whatever you need to sell merch. So I was saying, oh, I'm definitely working on a book about her. You know, when I, when I was touring the, this show in 2019 and I had basically photographed piles of research and then the pandemic hit and I was stuck in St. Albert with piles of photographed research. So killed a tree, printed it all out and, like, <laughs> wrote, the, and wrote the book. Yeah, it was so fitting that you had like published the book d before the Fringe show I had gone to because Deanna Durbin's been on our list of like episode topics for a while. So I'd written an article on Deanna Durbin's house in Winnipeg. Which one? The one, the Deanna Durbin house, the one that... The, the Kingston Row one that she, like, raffled off for a contest. Yeah, that's a cool house. I, oh, I mean, I met the that. people... Yeah, we I are. Met the pe I met the people who own it now, and they didn't know it, they didn't know it had a special history when they bought it. Oh, weird. And then people just, like, they knock on their door still. They say... Really? They drive by their house and take pictures in front of the house and knock on the door and ask to come in. And, like, I, I was allowed in. It's a great house. It's so, so exciting. Yeah, they do get strangers knocking, huh. and they actually found in the house when they were renovating, they found this little time capsule in the wall with old movie magazines, none of which were about Deanna Durbin, so oh. that's just confusing. 
So someone else left something there. Okay. Yeah. Someone else. And I think it's only had three owners or something. I mean, it, oh, wow. it hasn't changed hands a lot, but um, yeah, they were a little confused about why people cared so much about their house. <laughs> so like, who is Deanna Durbin? Then why are people showing up to this house? So Deanna Durbin was the most famous juvenile star in the late 1930s and early 1940s. And she's also the biggest forgotten star basically of old Hollywood. So she she did so much. She was the rival of Judy Garland. She she made teenage singers marketable in Hollywood. Uh, teenage actors and singers. At that point they basically weren't marketable. I mean even mm. even Shirley Temple knew that when she turned a certain age her career was going to be over. And that was that was just how things were. And then when they were 18 or 17 then they they were marketable again. But she made teenage singers a thing she changed she saved universal studios it would all the movies like jaws and schindler's list none of those would have been made because universal would have been out of business and in a roundabout way she saved a lot of refugees from the nazis by by the success of her movies it gave them work it allowed them to immigrate wow. and stay in america so she did a lot she did and so much more i mean she did so much and and she's from winnipeg yeah, she is. In the yes, very Winnipeg is. way where she's like born here and then quickly leaves. 17 months. She had 17, 17. glorious months <laughs> in Winnipeg. And then she moves to California. Yeah, but she was from, but her family, right, you know, yeah. even after even after her parents left Winnipeg, they wrote, they wrote to their family back in England saying, you know, Winnipeg is the best. I don't know why they didn't say come to us in Los Angeles, but they said, you know, Winnipeg's great. Just go there. That's interesting so too, they because did. they had to leave because... Obviously, their father couldn't work in Winnipeg because it was bad for his health. Yeah, but they still thought it was a good. It, it was. I mean, at that point, it was the most cosmopolitan city in Canada. It was. Yeah. It had the most opportunity of any city in Canada. So there you go. <laughs> so yeah, she's born here and then she leaves and then she becomes sort of a Hollywood star when she's a teenager, mm -hmm. and people become very attached to her very very quickly from the sounds of things. Like she's like an instant hit. Once they make her first movie. Oh, absolutely. She was a hit overnight, but also Winnipeg became attached to her very quickly. Oh, <laughs> you know? That I mean, sounds about right. Right? They were just like, yeah, she's ours, which is great. I mean, if you look at the old ads from the from Eaton's, like the old ads from all the, I, I have pictures of a bunch of them from Winnipeg saying, you know, get a permanent wave like Deanna Durbin at our, at, at our permanent wave at company you know at our hairdressers and you know buy this three smart girls deanna durbin outfit at eaton's and it, it, they they used her they marketed with her name a lot too and why not i mean they didn't totally. have, they didn't have slurpees yet so you had to, <laughs> what else? You had to use the, something we have the deanna durbin wave that's exactly <laughs> that's really funny what was what was her first movie Is her first one, movie like well, her first, first movie was called Every Sunday. It was done with Judy Garland at MGM, oh. but that was actually not released till a bit later. So her first movie that rocketed her to fame, her first full-length movie, because Every Sunday was just 11 minutes long. So oh. her first proper movie was called Three Smart Girls, and it was released in 1936. Yeah, it's a cute little movie. It's a great, I mean, it's, it's a great movie. I actually like the second one in the trilogy a lot better. So Three Smart Girls Grow Up is is a it's it's just the perfect movie is it <laughs> <laughs> i think what's so interesting too about every given or every sunday is that it's both D durbin and then garland when they're like pre-stardom mm -hmm. and then durbin takes off like instantly 
and it takes a bit longer for garlands to get there <laughs> well i mean part partly she wasn't as poised yeah partly that but also partly the studio mgm could take their time it was a huge studio it had a ton of stars it didn't need to thrust her into a leading role until they until they wanted to essentially i mean judy garland's first movie wasn't even an mgm film they lent her out and she was in um the football movie shoot what was it called um Ah, Pigskin Parade. Pigskin Parade was her <laughs> oh, first movie. What a I know. name. I know. And they, they lent her out. It wasn't their movie. And she played a pump a country bumpkin, you know, yeah. with with a fake accent and barefoot, basically. Whereas in Deanna's first movie, she was the star. Universal was desperate. They were running out of money. She yeah. was the star in the movie. And she was put as this beautiful, talented, shooed girl like wearing shoes yeah (laughs) for people who don't know also uh hollywood then had like a studio system where actors would like sign contracts with say universal or mgm that then tie them to that studio they wouldn't bounce around in quite the way they do now and it meant that studios had a lot of control over say what actors did what they looked like even how old they were and what their names were because deanna durbin wasn't born deanna Oh, she was born Edna May Durbin. And in her in, in every Sunday, they actually used her name Edna May. So you could see how early it was made. But I will no, say her Deanna name is better yeah. than it's, Edna It's a May. good name. It's a good... And anyone you meet sort of of a certain age whose name is Deanna now, you know that their mother was a Deanna Durbin. <laughs> the, the studio made the name up. It didn't exist before. Really? Yeah. So it was, it was made up likely because of a typo. It was likely supposed to be Diana. But it just, it wasn't a name before, and all of a sudden it was the name. That's crazy. Yeah, just like J.M. Barry essentially made up Wendy from Peter Pan. Huh. So it's, it's the same thing. Interesting. And then they bumped her age down a year to make her seem younger. Until she got engaged. They bumped yep. her age down until she got engaged because people were going to clutch their pearls and gasp about yeah. this child engagement. And they're like, no, no, no. She's actually barely of age. It's it's okay. We, we made a mistake. Yeah, I, th- I think it was Life magazine who printed, you know, they made a mistake and the studio fixed it. Huh. <laughs> Oops. And I think I believe her I believe her birth certificate is going to be released like under under Manitoba law. I think it's a what is it 98 years or something oh, or yeah. 103 years whatever it is it's getting released in a couple years so i am oh, i am so we'll, get to, to actually... we'll get to see for sure if yes. which time they were lying <laughs> exactly it's very soon i think it's two years from now or one year from now we'll get to see it oh wow we'll have to update everyone with the yeah exactly when like what back. what is the actual truth yeah yeah how old is she really but what's crazy is that I know you did an episode on Burton Cummings and there are a million, th- and I love Burton Cummings, but there are a million things in Winnipeg named after him. And yeah. there's yeah. nothing named after Deanna Durbin and except that house that it's just unofficial. Yeah, no, it's interesting. So I feel like Winnipeg really latches on to celebrities that are from here too. Like Neil Young went to high school here mm-hmm. and we Homer Simpson is a Winnipegger technically. Really? <laughs> yeah, he's an honorary citizen because the founder of the, the creator of the Simpsons, his father is from Winnipeg. Well, there you go. So like, we'll take anyone. Winnipeg appears, I think too, in the Simpsons yeah. movie. I don't know. There's a, there's a history there. But... Yeah, it's interesting that we have like the biggest star in Hollywood. And I think one of the like highest paid actors at the time. Yep. In 1946, she was the highest paid ac- woman in America, not just actor, the highest paid woman in America Ow. in 1946. Wow. And I believe the second highest paid in 1945. 
again, it's been, it's been a while since I wrote the book. Yeah. So I'm just like, I hope, I hope all these dates are correct. But um, yeah, she was the highest paid. She was massively big, especially in Winnipeg. And no one remembers her. So sad. Isn't that strange? Do you have any thoughts on like why that is? Well, there are various things. Partly her movies were not really released on VHS in North America. Okay. They're they barely really on DVD now. DVD now, but they skipped a yeah. whole generation with yeah. VHS. This is the thing, or right. beta or whatever. Yeah. And and they were released on VHS in Australia. So she she's still very I'm doing this show in Australia this winter. So hopefully she was very <laughs> much in the public in the public eye though there still, because people do remember her. Um largely though she just wanted to lead a normal life and she knew as long as people were interested in her she wouldn't be able to do that and so she she refused to speak to reporters she refused to do articles or do a comeback or do a where is she now she just essentially disappeared and what's crazy is that she was allowed to do that because i mean look at the look at the newspapers of the time and 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 the magazines i mean all of these things they chase celebrities and yet somehow nobody chased her yeah it's remarkable especially because like it sounds like Durbin was relatively unhappy for a lot of her experience filming I mean she had like an okay time compared to like Garland and even like Durbin who like had some say over her own image was allowed to eat whatever breakfast she wanted which is apparently fries and ketchup fries and ketchup but if you on the old movie magazines it lists it lists you know she ate toast and and, yeah, you know, of course. Um, carrots. The and, half a grapefruit. Yeah, the half a grape. Exactly, exactly. So, I mean, that didn't that didn't match the image that was appearing in movie magazines. Yeah. But yeah, she was basically allowed to do whatever she wanted to a certain extent. I mean, yeah. at a certain point when she wanted more control, they they she had to go on strike. They stopped making movies and basically they owned you. So if they stop making movies, you can't go make movies with another studio. You're just, you're just stuck. You, you're, mm-hmm. you're not allowed to work. So they did, they punished her twice by sort of putting her on hiatus. But in the end, she walked away. She she had residuals from the movies, I believe. She definitely had residuals from the merchandising. And she walked away with enough money to, to live a really good life. She Not had like a farmhouse in France. She did. She had a farmhouse in France and then also an apartment in Paris. The farmhouse was sort of in a suburb, maybe mm-hmm. 20 miles out of Paris. And she lived a great life. They traveled. They she and her husband, they they did all sorts of things. They just didn't come back to Winnipeg. No, the story of her retirement is so, so sweet. There's a bit in your book where she, like, there's a quote from her where she says that they made a pact when they got married that he'd protect her from reporters and spiders and she'd protect him from lions and tigers and dinosaurs. I know, it was really, really cute. cute. It was, I mean, and they, she clearly had a good relationship and with her, this was her third husband and largely probably because she left Hollywood. Yeah, and totally. She, and she wasn't I mean, this was a this was a love marriage, you know, as opposed to a publicity thing. I mean, her other two marriages didn't seem to have been publicity things either, because the first one was like a very hastily done, like engagement with a guy she'd been secretly dating. Oh, I know, and he was so much older. He was seven years older than yeah. she was, and she was fifteen when they started dating. So I mean, it oh, was yikes. she was young. That whole thing. I mean, she was probably really fifteen, almost sixteen. Yeah. But still, that I mean, that was that was young. But then her next husband was like 20 years older than her. Yep. And I mean, there is some question about, you know, did she, did she marry him because she was pregnant already? Cause she gave birth six, was it right. seven months after their marriage or oh. six months after yep. they got married to a full term baby. So, yeah. you know, was it his baby 
people sort of thought it was um, someone else's baby, a one of her co-stars. So um, knows. who knows? Who knows? I mean, they they were not married for long. But again, there's there's no way to know. She wasn't talking about it. Felix, her second husband, was not talking about it. So Orson Welles was talking about it in his, in his autobiography, but um, no what one wasn't else Orson was Welles talking about. Well, right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And then she finally gets a happy ending with like a lovely husband. And exactly, then, she gets. And was he so was he just like a guy? Was he? Well, he was a director and a producer as well. Oh, okay, he was until they married, which was crazy because. I mean, and I'm, I mean, I hope I'm not wrong about this, but I couldn't find really many credits for him because he was quite a well-known French producer and director. And he worked in Hollywood on a couple films, including one of hers. And that's how they met. And then they got married and he was going to produce all these other things. And he just didn't. Hey. They just sort of lived together. I guess he retired. He was older, but not that old. Right. Just yeah. decided to settle down into married life, I guess, maybe. Yeah, and both, and like, a step out of showbiz. A, yeah, they had a big fence around their house and a bunch of puppies. Ah. Uh -huh. You know, privacy, I guess. Yep. <laughs> and then, yeah, when she retires, we kind of... She fades out of at least Winnipeg's consciousness to a certain extent. But, like, when she was famous, she was, like, Winnipeg's sweetheart. We were very attached to her. Well, she was. She was. And as, as far as the Deanna Durbin house, I mean, she she donated the money to make the house. She donated the, the money for a lot of, I think it was furnished by Eaton's, but uh, she donated a lot of things. And her mom actually came up to do the soil turning for the house. So, I mean, right, yeah, they were very involved in all of that. But um, yeah, she didn't come to Winnipeg all that much just because she couldn't get away. But her grandmother lived there and a bunch of her cousins Likely their descendants still live in Winnipeg because quite a few cousins immigrated there. Oh, interesting. It could be so the Deanna oh, Durbin house. Is this, is this just a house where like her family lived or was it? Um, um, what's, the, what's the story with this? So there are two houses in Winnipeg currently where her family did live. I believe that I, di I didn't have a car. I was going to go just double check. They still, Google Maps said they still existed. But um yeah, I can I can send you the addresses if you're curious, but um the, we'll the house the where, Yeah, like <laughs> hi. These are you know, they're quite old houses, but they're the house where she was born and then the house where they moved, I think, right before she was born. So these two these are two other houses. And um they still exist, I think. But the Deanna Durbin house, she donated for a raffle to raise funds for the Kinsman Milk Fund. So they were sending powdered milk to the kids um in in the UK. And this was a they were trying to figure out what are what are ways we can raise money and they thought a raffle for a house donated by Deanna Durbin so she never lived in it she just sort of donated it hmm. um it just went stamped her name on it yeah stamped yep. her name on it 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 went to a farmer in Saskatchewan who won it and he had no desire to move to Winnipeg <laughs> oh no <laughs> so, so he, I think he took the ten thousand dollars in war bonds instead of the house because like a few months later there was a house for sale ad for this house oh jeez and then and then it sold it hasn't sold much since. No, I think the, the original owners had it for like 50 years and then it went to a couple more people and then the current owners. Wow. I would have taken the house. Yeah. I and guess if you're yeah. a farm worth sketch when you have to get rid of the farm. Yeah. And move to the big city. Did he expect to win when he bought the um, the raffle tickets, eh? Yeah, that's true. I mean, the tickets were quite cheap. He was probably in town for the fair because there were all sorts of different fairs and yeah, probably thought, okay, maybe I'll win... It's for a good a cause. 
it's for a good exactly it's yeah. for a good cause give milk to the children and this kinsman milk thing was was huge all over the country but this was definitely the most large-scale and creative way to raise money Interesting. to send milk to the children that's funny we did we did a whole episode on milk and especially like milk for children and stuff and milk in schools so really? i just love when it, i love when somehow it comes back around to milk i'm like oh it always okay. does it feels it like it does here we go again so out of curiosity what was the history with the milk is it just because like underfed children got milked in the depression is that milk um, and kind of oh boy we talked about it for like two hours oh no i'll listen i'll listen to it then <laughs> no it's okay um yeah i guess just there was there was an idea that it was this sort of like perfect nutrition mm -hmm. right that it was um you know just this sort of food that um contained everything a person needs you know whether that was or wasn't true but whatever but uh yeah there was definitely this a sort of obsession with um with milk for a little while Think of those lactose intolerant children just drinking. Oh, no. <laughs> just <laughs> yeah. If it's the perfect food, why do I feel so bad? <laughs> exactly. It's the cost of health. Yeah. I know after Deanna Durbin would sing on the radio, she wasn't allowed to eat after because it wasn't considered good for your voice, but she was allowed a cup of milk and hot chocolate. Like hot oh, chocolate. Interesting. So I mean that that was so there you go. The perfect nutrient yeah. is sugar and milk. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Just what you need for someone's throat after singing. Exactly. <laughs> so yeah, Durbin's family is here throughout the 1930s, specifically her grandma. And there's one story in your book about how like when three men and a girl comes out, or three smart girls comes out, um, a reporter, Frank Morris with the Winnipeg Free Press, has this idea to do like a publicity stunt screening for her family. It was a, a brilliant idea. Yeah. It was I mean, Frank Morris, honestly, I feel like you should do an episode on Frank Morris. He was this amazing guy. He he worked for something like 50 years on the free press, and then he retired and he died in a car accident in like Nova Scotia within like a couple weeks. Oh, like, no. oh, wow. Oh, no. I mean, but he, see, he, he was the kind of guy like, I feel like, I mean, obviously I didn't know him. But he, he would go to like Comic Cons kind of thing. He, he was always being photographed beside the stars and he looked kind of nerdy. <laughs> and he would travel to Hollywood just to meet as many of these people as he could and get photographs <laughs> with them. Like it's yeah. it's really kind of cool. And he was he he was the most important arts reporter and the most connected arts reporter in Western Canada for years. Wow. But um he yeah, he got to know Deanna's grandmother, which is brilliant because even the New York Times, like all of the major newspapers were getting their stories from the studios. They didn't have direct access to Deanna. I mean, they could talk to her, but she was told what to say. She didn't always listen. Sometimes she didn't, but most of the time, you know, she was told what to say. Yeah. Or they just got a press release telling them what to write. And Frank Morris was basically the only person who had direct access to their family. Hmm. And he used it. He wrote all these stories that he'd get from from Deanna's father telling the grandmother or from the grandmother directly. And, you know, at one point he got an exclusive photo of her when he was visiting the grandmother and her agent just freaked out because he, he did not, he didn't probably, he wasn't paid for it. Like, to be honest, he probably yeah. wanted to kick back, but you know, he said he didn't get permission and how dare he. And he actually said, you know, he would complain to the mayor of the town, like the mayor of Winnipeg and the mayor's like, what, like, what am I supposed to do, man? So, yeah, but Frank Morris just basically did whatever he wanted and he got he got the inner scoop on Deanna, which is kind of amazing that the Winnipeg Free Press, which at that point was a big enough paper, but it certainly didn't compare with like 
the New York Times, like the major newspapers, right. he they they had the scoop on Deanna more than anybody else. I mean, it's kind of genius to go like gossip with someone's grandma to get the... also whose grandma wouldn't want to brag about their movie star granddaughter. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. And the whole article was about the grandmother's impression. She had never been in a movie movie theater ever before. So, you know, it was getting her to the theater, walking her in, seeing her granddaughter on the screen. And I mean, it's just it was an angle that no one else, no one else even thought of doing. It was just brilliant. So good on you, Frank Morris. <laughs> No, he seems to have like really hit the jackpot with the grandma being so willing to chat with him too. He was, I mean, he was like a slightly nerdy, nice young man. Yeah, you know, no, why not? Like grandmas would love him, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and then it seems like any point after that, whenever there was a screening of a Deanna Durbin Winnipeg and movie or movie in Winnipeg, everyone was like, "It's our girl Deanna. She's back in the theater. We're all gonna go see it." All of the reviews in the papers are very sweet. Like, it's our girl. Oh, I know. I know. It's just, it was really sweet. They really did take her to their heart, which was delightful. I mean, look, it's the middle of the depression. I mean, keeping that, keeping that in the context of, of, of mm-hmm. how she succeeded, people didn't have jobs. They didn't have money. And to see a young girl, and I mean, she essentially saved her family during the depression with the money she made. And that was very highly publicized about how she saved her father's life because he wasn't strong. So, I mean, this is really I guess a lot of fathers wish their daughters could do this. You know what I mean? She was sort of the ideal child, you know, doing this for her family and, and all that. And it was just, it was all very romanticized, but it's also very sweet that she was able to do that because Judy Garland wasn't at that point and her father did die at an early age. Interesting. I mean, yeah. And um, like you were saying earlier, she's quite kind of like poised as well. So maybe it wasn't quite as, scandalous in that way to be supported by your like actress daughter yeah i mean he was sort of her manager for a while this is the thing they made her they made her hair they made him her manager and when this this coogan law went forward it was this thing jackie coogan was a child star and his parents took all their monies took all Mm -hmm. of his so there was there was a law passed and her father was officially put in as her manager he was actually given a smaller percentage than a regular manager so it was acknowledged that like he's not really doing this i mean he's not really the manager this is just a way to kick back some money to the family because also yeah. you know he was a he was a manual worker on the railroad he was not a manager i mean this is just no. not what his training was at all right. but but she was she she saved her parents i mean he learned to fly a plane he spent his retirement years flying up to Winnipeg, actually, often, just to see the family in his little plane. And Were you he thinking, Serena, that his health wasn't that good as well? Yeah, he was, he not- was quite sickly. And I think the story had been that, like, if he had kept working in manual labor, he probably would have died young. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely the story that that she told and that, that everybody told. Yeah. So, yeah, likely yeah. he wouldn't he wouldn't have lived. So she saved him, not just it was the Depression and they needed money, but she literally saved him. Through, right. through her talent. Hmm. And the whole family seemed to have known she was talented pretty early on. There was a story, too, that, like, her older sister, Edith, was engaged but put her wedding on hold just to put Deanna through music school and to try and get her, like, recognized. Well, exactly. Plus, she did win, you know, loudest crying baby at the right, Manitoba. Yes. <laughs> she was, like, the loudest whaler or something. Exactly, the whaling competition. <laughs> so, um, you know, she did have a loud voice from the beginning. That sounds like a terrible room to be in where that contest is being held. <laughs> well, right. I mean, I, I think I think those old provincial fairs would have been amazing because you've got like the pigs totally. and then the pies and then the screaming children. 
Yeah. You're listening <laughs> like, to see which child can wail the loudest. Yeah, like, what do you do to those kids to make them cry? Seriously. <laughs> but um, history. It's history. Yeah. Is there? How did? How was she like discovered? Is there? Well, is there a sort of story about that? There is. So basically she was taken to Los Angeles. I mean, she, her, her older sister decided that she needed singing lessons. So she was, she was given singing lessons at a studio that sort of had her sing. She was one of the better students and she was very pretty. So the studio had her sing at different concerts around, around the city, mostly to get them new students. And she was seen at that point by, um, what was his name? Cheryl. I, I, I'm literally just recording the audiobook today. I just read this. I just, I'm just like, um, anyway, so she was, she was seen by this, this agent, Cheryl, and he took her to the studio because they were, they were making a movie of Ernestine Schumann. Hank was the biggest opera singer back then. And they were making a biopic of her life and they needed someone to play her as a child. So they needed an opera singing girl who kind of looked like her sort of. And so they, they found her to do that. And that's when she was signed on to MGM. And then she was later fired. And when she was discovered a second time, Rufus Lemaire, who had worked at MGM, and then he 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 went on to work at Universal, he knew about her and he decided to make her a star. He tried to get her cast as the singing voice of Snow White in Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, like the Disney film. And she was turned down as sounding too old. She was 14. Oh. <laughs> turned her down. Disney himself turned her down. And so- wow. And so Rufus Lemaire had a whole plan. He decided to get her known as a singing star, like a child with the voice of a woman before <laughs> she went in a movie. So he had her put on Eddie Cantor, who was the biggest vaudevillian, the biggest radio star at the time on his new show, Texaco Town. And you can download those episodes. I've listened to the, what, they think there are three seasons of this radio show. And it's, it's amazing. You can just see how he made her into a star on the radio. So when she when she was in a movie and she did become a star overnight in the movie, but she already had like hundreds or tens of thousands of fans who were just, you know, the minute they knew she was in a movie, they they would go see it. So it was it was it was overnight stardom, but it was also very carefully done hmm. and it, it was done really cleverly, too. Yeah, I guess there's that kind of word of mouth then, hey, to um, for people to be like, oh, have you heard her? She's on the radio. Well, it's building a platform. It's like yeah. what we all try to do on Twitter and TikTok yeah. and all that. I mean, they, <laughs> they built her a platform essentially. And um, Eddie Cantor really, I mean, he was very respected when he wanted someone to be a star, they became a star and he wanted her to be a star. That's interesting. Yeah. You say she was um, turned down to be Snow White because she does have that sort of like wavery voice. What is that? Is there a name for that? I, I feel like I mean, there must I mean, it's vibrato. So she has okay, vibrato in her voice. I mean, she sings like a classical singer, whereas Judy sings like a popular, a popular singer of the American songbook genre. So right. listening to, I mean, you said you heard, or you can just look up um, opera versus jazz and you can see them singing in, in every Sunday that's on YouTube hmm. and their voices are very contrasted. You can mm -hmm. just see one is classical. The other is popular. And like Deanna herself had wanted to be an opera singer. That was one of her like lifelong goals. It was. And the Metropolitan Opera actually offered her an audition when she was 16 and she turned it down. She felt she wasn't ready yet. And realistically, she, she probably wasn't. Yeah. I mean, I, I went it's to young. opera school in New York and I mean, I wasn't ready at 16. <laughs> but, I mean, she she wasn't. She probably wasn't. But the Metropolitan Opera was following her career and she retired. At, she was under 30 when she left Hollywood. 
she could have had an opera career, but I think I think I mean she was done at that point. Yeah. She she knew there'd be politics equally as dramatic as in Hollywood. But yeah, she always planned to be an opera singer. There's, there's definitely did. like in her voice. She's got a beautiful, very classical voice. And they feel like in the movies they make her sing more than the early ones, more classical music too than Garland's more poppy stuff. Oh, totally. And the difference was, I mean, Deanna Durbin only made two movies a year. So they, yes, she worked all the time, but she didn't work all the time to the extent that Judy Garland did. They were very careful of her voice. If she was tired, she'd stop singing. I mean, they were mostly careful. When she was recording, I think it was for her second movie, A Hundred Men and a Girl, when she was recording the music in the studio, Andre Previn, the conductor, would blow cigarette smoke in her face because she had to strengthen up her voice and learn to (laughs) not be a diva. And it's just like, (laughs) what? So, I mean, she was, you know... They took care of her voice, aside from blowing nicotine in her face. But, um, you know, they didn't make her work all night. You know, she would work a couple hours and then they'd stop. They were very careful about what she'd eat before. They they treated her like like a a precious commodity because she was. She had value to the studio. Whereas Judy Garland sort of proved that she could work under any conditions. So they just, they worked her into the ground, basically. Mm -hmm. And there was no one to be an advocate for her in the same way. Yeah, I mean, there are some pretty atrocious stories about how Judy Garland was was treated, even as, you know, a child or a teenager. Well, right. And the thing is, her mom didn't care. Her mom, yeah. she was her mom's meal ticket, whereas Deanna Durbin's mom often was there making sure her child was treated all right. Hmm. I mean, they, they appreciated the money she brought in, but they she, she wasn't seen as just a workhorse. It was right. It was just a totally different way to see two people and and the way they were both treated it just so unfair for judy garland oh i know this is the thing i mean if she was only treated like she had some value as a child her life would have been so different Mm -hmm. and she didn't come from winnipeg there's also that (laughs) (laughs) yeah deanna when she gets into hollywood gets like really busy so she didn't come to winnipeg that often once she like started filming movies no, she came She came in once right before she was hired at MGM. So she wasn't a star at all. So she came up once to visit. And then she came up once after she was hired at MGM, but before her first movie came out. Or maybe it was after her first movie, but before her second movie. And she came out, up once then. And maybe one other time, she didn't actually get up all that often. Yeah, so like three visits total when she was famous. <laughs> but her parents came up all the time. Yep. And her grandma didn't really go to visit her either, though, but that would have been a long trip to make for No, she came to her wedding. The grandmother right, yes. came down for the first wedding, and that's, I think that might be it. Oh, just, I mean, just for the first one? <laughs> just for the first one. Well, the second I, yes. one was a Vegas elopement, wasn't it? Wow. Yes, it was. Yeah. And, and it was actually the same place where Judy was married. I think the fourth wedding, third or fourth wedding, was in, was in the Little Church of the West, which is the same place where Deanna hmm. eloped for her second one. So their lives were very similar. But they kept talking about how old her grandmother was. I think she was like 60. I mean, she wasn't. <laughs> I mean, I forget. I forget the age offhand. But it was like 64 or something. If you do the math and I'm like, that's not that old. Yeah. No. I mean, no. That's really Not funny. at all. I mean, I've considered different standards back then maybe for what was old, I guess. Well, ex- yeah, exactly. But they talk with the little old grandmother and I'm like, I know fringe performers who are that age. Like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> But different times. It was a different yeah. time. Yeah. yeah <laughs> but sure. she made it to the first wedding. Yes, yeah, she made it to the first wedding, the giant one at the Wiltshire, where there were 
millions and not millions there was like 300 people and it was a massive it was the biggest wedding that year i believe in hollywood it was just this huge thing would have been nice to be there were winnipeg people excited about that like was that in the papers here not only well frank morris got a hold of one of the wedding invitations and he put it in in the paper it had been sent to one of the parents friends because they still were in contact with a lot of people in winnipeg so some of them weren't actually invited to the wedding so yeah frank morris got his hands on a wedding invitation and probably printed it as as he did i don't think he was invited unfortunately but maybe i I think not he would have mentioned it in one of the articles you gotta brag about that yeah exactly and he he quoted Deanna's parents, especially her father. I think he talked directly to the father several times too. And yeah, I mean- That's he, quite the scoop. That's really impressive. It was, I mean, he had these weird little stories he'd come up with, which possibly were true. I mean, there's one story that nobody, <laughs> nobody else printed in any paper about how for one of the movies, I think it was Three Smart Girls, like the second one, Three Smart Girls Grow Up or whatever it was called. Um, <laughs> And where she had to cry and eat eat something while she cried. And then her, her director was like, well, what do you, what do you want to eat? You can pick what it's going to be. And she said, well, how about pork? And, you know, she ate, she, they had to shoot the scene something like 28 times. And so oh, she God. just got so full of pork. And then afterwards, the, the director offered to take her out for, it was ham. So he offered to take her out for ham um, as to, <laughs> to, you know, to celebrate the scene being done. And she's like, no. And I mean, Frank Morris splashed this out into a full article and printed it. And so you're like, where did he hear that story? Like someone, someone told him that story. I mean, that's my favorite kind of old story, the possibly true kind. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, like we're going to go with likely true just because Frank Morris really did have the scoop, but like possibly likely true. True yeah. enough. True yeah. enough. That's often the way with old papers, especially in Winnipeg. Well, and, but yeah. any of the old papers, yeah. you're just like, yeah. what's true? What's possibly true? It, it is sometimes very hard to figure out like what what isn't true and what is true, especially you know that people were lying a lot. So. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Lots of tall tales and uh, yeah. There was one reporter for the Tribune who was nicknamed the Winnipeg Liar because he really? would make things up so often. That's crazy. She was making up stories about like coyotes invading Winnipeg and everyone was like on the hunt for them and there were armed guards who'd send these out to foreign reporters. What year was this? Oh, like early 1900s until like wow. 1905. That's okay. I mean, people were, st- the railway was already there at that point, right? Though people, people. People had been like there. Was, okay, people had been to Winnipeg. Okay. Yeah. And he was just like, I've got a new story for you. And it's a bunch of people have died tragically in a, like, in a ship sinking. It was not true at all. Up. Oh, jeez. I mean, that Red River, you know. <laughs> boat travel was a pretty big thing but it was that there'd been like a typo in the telegram saying like four people had died and it said 400 accidentally and he was like i'm gonna make this a whole thing jeez i mean he sounds like a lot he sounds like my kind of guy i think he'd be a lot of fun oh yeah winnipeg's full of characters so frank morris seems like he'd fit right in with everyone else yeah he probably did fit right in and i love the fact that the old houses are all still there Oh, I mean, yeah. I love it. In Edmonton, some of them are, some of them are, but in Winnipeg, there seems to be a lot of old neighborhoods that are that are still around. Yeah, we sort of lucked out in that when places like Edmonton were trying to rebuild, we didn't have the money to do it. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> Yay! This is the trick, I, is to be yeah. broke for a good half of the 20th century. <laughs> I mean, you spent all the money on developing Slurpee flavors. So. Yeah, we were busy. We had other you stuff know, going that, on. You know, that takes a lot of resources. So, <laughs> so many, exactly. <laughs> 
I just realized you could see a corset in the background. Surprise! <laughs> Oops. Oh well. That's stuff that was in the closet. Not in the closet now. <laughs> that might be. It might end up being a costume. Not now. <laughs> we'll see. Down the road. Down the road. We'll see. So yeah, Dana doesn't really get out to Winnipeg, but what's her relationship with like with Winnipeg as a city? Do you know? Was she like fond of it? I mean, she seemed she seemed to want to go back. I mean, she talked about it a lot. She she kept saying she meant to go. It just didn't it just didn't happen. Yeah. I mean, I think once she left Hollywood, she just she wasn't going anywhere where anyone might recognize her. But but when she was a star, she spoke fondly of Winnipeg. She really embraced being Winnipeg's sweetheart. A oh, lot. Good. I mean, she, she, not so much a Canadian. She didn't talk about, you know, I I love Canada. It was, I love Winnipeg. It was very specific. Um, yeah, it's interesting. And part of it is, you know, a small girl from a small town. I know it wasn't a small town. It was like the third biggest city in Canada. But, but for small, you know, LA, small town, for Hollywood. Exactly. I mean, that was part of her persona. But yeah, she's, she always spoke fondly. She spoke fondly of going. She said, the, the time she came, the one time she came when she was a star, she had planned to stay a week and possibly do a concert. But again, the studio rushed her, rushed her through the trip. It was yeah. a day. That's it. And then they rushed her back. And it wasn't, she, I mean, she, she was coming basically from Philadelphia to Los Angeles and they just did a detour because, you know, that's on the way <laughs> like up to Winnipeg <laughs> and then back down. So at least she got to visit, but like that, she was allowed a single day. That's it. Right. She would it have been like, like 15 or 16. So it's a brutal pace. I, yeah, I think she was 14. Oh, wow. She came with her mom and her manager. And, you know, she was given the key to the city. I didn't realize that Winnipeg had like oh. a key to give out. <laughs> so, like, that's, but yeah, she was given the key to the city and she was on, you know, the radio. The radio. She met with the mayor. She, yep. you know, she did. She went to the circus. There was a Shriner Circus on then. So she went to the circus to greet all the children. She I think it was still in the Shriner Circus. Do you? It was a busy day for her. At least we did. We did when I was a kid. I don't know. But yeah, that's a busy day. Yeah. Didn't we get tickets in school? We get like free child's tickets if your parents. You're right. That's probably, that's probably why I got to go. (laughs) Now that you think about it. (laughs) Yeah, that was good advertising. Like, hey, kids, free circus, but your parents will have to pay like Your parents still have to pay to go. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's really smart. We should do that at the fringe. Be like free tickets. Oh, now we're talking. Free tickets for kids. If your parents, if all your, all yeah. the adults, you know, come. Yeah. <laughs> Good plan. So I had heard too, the studio also made her being from like Winnipeg as part of a thing. She was like the girl from St. Vitale for a bit. Yes, she was. Yes, she was. And the St. Vitale Historic Society, I, I assume you've been there. They have that little house that's their historic right, yes. society yes. in St. Vitale. They don't have a lot about her. They have like a couple oh. things. Because I went, when I was doing the show, the people who owned, the kind people who owned the Deanna Durbin house just lived down the street from there. So they took me to the St. Vitale Stork Society and they had like a couple pictures. I feel, I feel like they should have more. I feel like I should give them some things. <laughs> you know, I, yeah. I feel that, I mean, they'll only have more if someone gives them more, but yeah. I feel like they need more. I, I have to, to call them up. But yeah, yeah, she was the girl from St. Vitale. Definitely. That was, that was very, very much embraced as part of her persona. It's always so interesting. I'm a big fan of like old movies and Hollywood stuff and how the studios would shape something like they take this girl from Winnipeg and be like, well, you're Deanna now. You're you're younger. Here's where you're born. Well, look at Mary Pickford. She was America's sweetheart. She was Canadian. Right. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, it's too bad she's in silent movies because I would love to do a show about her. But like singing, I have to sing in shows. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It sells tickets. But like her, 
her life was amazing. Her story is amazing. And she was considered America's sweetheart. And that, that was the persona made for her. And she was fully Canadian. So right. you never, you never know about it's all what, smoke what, what and they, mirrors. It's all smoke and mirrors. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I can see why Deanna Durbin would get so fed up with it so quickly too. If they're putting her, like you get to go visit your grandma for a day and then I'm, you're back to work. Well, exactly. I mean, look, at least she got time off for her honeymoon. Um, Judy didn't. Right. She yes. didn't, you know, wow. she, she eloped with her first husband and she was basically told if she wasn't back by the time filming started in like 24 hours or something, she, she'd be fired and never work in Hollywood again. Whereas I think Deanna got three weeks off or something. I mean, it was, it was very, it was very different. Again, they were treated very differently, but I mean, one reason she left is there was new management in the studio. They didn't like her. They didn't understand why they were paying her so much money. They didn't think she was worth it. They gave her, her last few movies aren't good and it's not her fault. They're just bad. The scripts are bad. The plots, the plots of her early movies are just, they're, they're good movies. Mm -hmm. You know, they gave her, they gave her good scripts that were written for her. These last movies, uh, some of them weren't written for her. They were written for other people and then they shoved her in them. And again, she didn't have the say. She had gone on strike to negotiate the right to have the say, and they just they just stopped listening to her. And so, I mean, she she walked away partly because she was just like, you know what, they're not respecting me. I don't need well, this. Good for her to kind of go out on her own terms. Then, yeah, I mean, in the end, she didn't even make the. She owed them a bunch more movies, and they owed her some money. And she went on strike, and then they tried to sue her, and it was a whole thing. And in the end, they just all sat back and waited till her contract ran out and paid her wow. a lot of money. Because they've had to pay her whether or not they were making movies. So they paid her like a lot of money to not, huh, to not, to not make and movies. she just waited and she wasn't allowed to do anything else with anyone else. And I just think she was done with that. And she left not to Winnipeg yeah. though. By that point too, she had a daughter, which I think probably influenced part of her decision to leave because she had a kid to hang out with and watch grow up and she was missing. She had a kid and I, she, I don't know if she was quite pregnant when she left or she became pregnant soon after, but she had a son not long after she left um, with her, with her last husband. And she didn't, I think she had seen like how much of her early childhood she missed with her daughter, Jessica. And she just didn't want to do that. Mm -hmm. I mean, she saw how, I mean, she had a bungalow on the back lot. She was one of the only stars, the only star at the time who actually had her own house, not just a trailer, but like a full on house on the back lot. So she had it transformed into a nursery and she got to have her daughter there and see her. But it's still, you know, she missed the first time she walked. She missed, it, it was a very, sort of the plight of the working mother, but a lot earlier, you know, back yeah. then when, when mothers were expected to stay home if you could. And she, I think she was feeling the pressures of, of she was missing that. And she, she didn't, she wasn't empowered in the way that working mothers can be empowered now. Mm -hmm. She was, you know, feeling that she was missing things she should be there for. Hmm. So she left. Yeah. And it's impressive to me that she did. It's a hard system to get out of. I feel like not a lot of stars leave it on their own terms and then get a happy ending. Well, exactly. I mean, part they made it easy for her to leave yeah. in that they just, they, they did not treat her well near the end. And I think she had, her rise to stardom was so early that, or so easy. I mean, like Judy Garland struggled so hard to be a star that once she made it, she was just hanging onto it. Like mm -hmm. yeah. to give it up for her would be impossible in a way. But for Deanna, it, it came so easily. It came so quickly. And I think that, she, you know, for her to give it up, it it didn't represent years of struggle and sacrifice. It was a thing right. she did and she was happy to be done with it. And she felt that the Deanna character wasn't her. 
You know, she right, went back yes. to being called Edna May until late in life. Like late in life, she started writing to her fans. I mean, we're talking about like the year 2000, 2005, and she mm-hmm. would write to her fans and she would sign her, she would sign it Deanna again. So she mm-hmm. sort of re-embraced the character after her husband had died, after, you know, everyone involved with her career had died. Essentially, she was the last one standing. Right. She sort of embraced the character one more time. Well, that would be, I mean, that would be odd to be, you know, 30 years old and never feel as if you had been able to live as yourself. Especially as a mother. I mean, she, I mean, yeah. I'm not a mother, obviously, but, <laughs> but she, I mean, she was a mother and she was still being treated like a child. And I think that that would make me crazy. Mm-hmm. And I think it just, she just had enough. I mean, she had the yeah. money, she, she had the professional power and yet she was being treated in the end, I mean, she was treated and like like a star. She was um, cherished like a star at the beginning. And I think as soon as it went away, it was very obvious to her, right. you know, what the lack of respect she was getting from the studio and, and the new owners. Just again, they were like, "Why are we paying you so much? We have other stars. We don't need you." And after World War II, times had changed. You know, people were. This happened to a lot of major stars during the war. People did sort of move on, and the stars who couldn't reinvent themselves did. You know, they were seen yeah. as products of an earlier era, and in a lot of ways, she was seen that way, even though she was in her mid twenties, right? <laughs> like, so, uh, not old at all. No, and like by Hollywood standards, yeah. <laughs> yeah but exactly. also, like even a couple years before they were like done with her, she had fans in like all kinds of places like she was big in soviet russia i mean she's still big in soviet russia it is that's that's a place that never forgot her her movies are still played all the time there really it is interesting because i mean in a way it's her movies are capitalism at its best you know it's always about finding money in in work you know finding money just in getting rich or you know having a rich person think she's wonderful and fall in love with her. I mean, it really, they really do represent, you know, evil capitalism of the West. And yet people loved her movies in Soviet Russia. That's interesting. She does actually sort of have the the look and sound of a Soviet starlet. Yeah, you're right. In a way she does for sure. But, but yeah, you're right. The, yeah, the, um, the plot lines are a little different for sure. (laughs) I mean, a lot of the plot lines in her early movies are actually like, they're not Russian per se, but like, these were they're they're remakes of movies that the producer and director made in 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 Berlin and in Vienna. Like a lot of them are just not word for word, but almost word for word reproductions of movies that they made for Universal, but Universal Berlin or Universal mm. um, wherever the studios were, Vienna Berlin. They they moved between the two studios, so um, it would it would be fascinating to see those original original movies. Oh yeah, I, I bet they still exist. Mm. Should try to find them at some point they might be somewhere maybe yeah somewhere i mean the nazis might have destroyed them too this is the problem but they, they might possible. still be somewhere yeah well Anne frank was also a fan of deanna durbin like there's Anne frank posters in the Anne frank house or deanna durbin yeah, the I mean, Anne frank house oh, and wow. they're almost the only things that remained after the place was ransacked i mean they, they're still on the wall just like they were i mean i didn't actually get into the Anne frank's house when i was in amsterdam you had to reserve like months in advance so i was outside <laughs> i almost saw them but um yeah apparently according to the internet according to people who have been there um they're they're almost the only things remaining originally wow so yeah so she was she was that famous and she also represented the freedom of the west 
in a lot right. of ways. She represented, you know, a different kind of adolescence where you weren't hiding from the Nazis, where, you know, your life wasn't in danger, where mm -hmm. you could live openly. And it was just, it was, she gave so many people hope. I mean, even like the steps of Siberia, her movies made it out there to movie theaters, like in Siberia, near Mongolia. And, you wow. know, people who, who had no money for food and they were like literally starving of hunger would get enough money together to go see her movies. Mm -hmm. So it was, it's awesome. And I'm, you know, I'm sure there's things I didn't uncover either. I mean, her movies were so famous in so many different places. Yeah, it's so fascinating to hear like the reach of her movies when like, until I started doing the podcast, I'd never heard of her before. Mm-hmm. Nobody has. This is the sad part. Like, really, so few people have. And I mean, I'd sell more books if more people had also. There's that. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> but people, I feel like people should know about her. She's got a really interesting story. And it's a good look at sort of what Hollywood is like, even when it's like not horrifically abusive to its stars. It's also a lesson about how fast people can be forgotten. And I've seen yeah. this with other people because like, I just, I just did a show about Noel Coward who is, who was one of the most, the most famous Britain, like person from Britain in the 20th century. Nobody remembered him. And I'm like, he didn't die that he died 49 years ago, but I mean, historically that's not that long yeah. ago, but he was the most famous person in England up until 49 years ago. And it's just, people were like, we've never heard of him. I'm like, how have you not heard of him? <laughs> I mean, it's just, so it just shows like how, and Eddie Cantor, very few people have heard of him and he was the most famous vaudevillian. Yeah. He was the only human who ever was made into a balloon at the Macy's parade. The only like non-cartoon <laughs> character. He was so famous, they made a, a him balloon. Mm -hmm. So I, I believe that was 1941. And it's just, people, no one remembers him either. You know, so it's just, it's crazy how quickly people you think couldn't be remembered forever just aren't. Yeah, it's interesting. Well, I think like what you said about it not being on like VHS tapes, I find really interesting because um, so I did some research on Josephine Baker a while back. And it was funny because when I spoke to people who kind of did remember her, they remembered her from her singing because that is still kind of available and recorded and you can go on Spotify and listen to Josephine Baker. Yeah. Whereas like her her films you can kind of get but like her live performances which is what she was really known for during her actual lifetime like that's just gone from memory right yeah i mean her music is on i mean if you sub subscribe to a jazz channel on spotify right. her music will come up periodically exactly yeah but so her movies, just people don't know like, the way people are um the way people are remembered hey i guess depends on the way they're recorded and but and people forget quickly it's just yeah it, I can't get over how quickly people forget, which isn't good for me doing historic shows. I'm trying to figure out what to do next. And I'm like, oh, how about, oh, no one's going to remember this person. Well, how about, oh, no one's going to well, remember this Well, this is our struggle either. constantly. This is our struggle all the time. Really? We're, always like, we're always like, oh, people know what that is. And then, like, we have to ask someone who's not a historian. They're like, we have no idea what that is. <laughs> like, oh, no. I mean, in Winnipeg, say everyone knows the general strike. I assume that would be a thing people would yes. remember. We have sure. the general strike and Louis Riel. And then everything else is kind That's of it. like a mist that no, no one can see beyond. <laughs> oh no, I didn't know Louis Riel was from Winnipeg, but okay. It's okay. <laughs> I mean, because isn't the bar, there was a bar, there's a bar in Toronto where he had a meeting. Oh, I don't, I don't know. He was arrested or there, there's some, there's like, anyway, I, I'll listen to your podcast about Louis Riel. We haven't done an episode on him yet. We have oh, not done, we haven't done Louis Riel. I think because we haven't done the general strike and we haven't done Louis Riel because we were like, that has been done. 
<laughs> like, I guess so you're right. People, That's yeah. true. Maybe, probably eventually, but um, yeah. It's so an episode about milk and then one about a garbage man. So. <laughs> oh, but I mean, this is the history that's interesting. And like, yeah. I, I live in New York a lot of the time. And, you know, you read a book from like the mid 1800s and someone's talking about being in a square where you are or, you know, yeah. a, a building yeah. that you've been in. And it's just history piles upon history and it's forgotten so quickly. Totally. And yeah, it's great. You guys are, you know, bringing some of that back like milk. Who knew milk was a, was, was a thing you could drink? And now you do. I thought it was just almond milk. So, Groundbreaking research over here from us. It comes yeah. from a cow. Oh my God. Wow. They used wow. to have that? Okay. That's crazy. So much of your book is contrasting Deanna and Judy Garland too. And what it got me thinking about is how we remember Garland so much more. And I almost wonder if part of the reason we remember that is because Garland's life is so much sadder. I think there's some sort of like expectation of tragedy with stardom. I mean, yes. Okay, first her movies are still played all the time. So yeah. there definitely is that. She co-starred with a lot of people like Mickey Rooney, that, yes. who was equally as famous. I mean, Freddie Bartholomew, who again, no one really remembers him. He was in a, he was in a few quite a few movies, but he wasn't quite as famous as, as Mickey Bruni, but he, you know, Freddie Bartholomew was in a movie with Deanna Durbin, but Judy Garland had a lot of, okay, Gene Kelly was also in a movie with Deanna Durbin, but it was an early movie and it wasn't great. But, you know, I mean, the people, but he, she had a lot of famous co-stars. She was tragic, but also like in a way she was more accessible. She was just looking at her in a movie. You feel like I could be her or I, I would, I could know her. There's in a way Deanna seems unknowable. You watch her in a movie and she's, I, I don't know. I can't really put this into words, but I mean, people, most people can't sing like she sings. So you're, right. you know, yeah. Judy Garland sings in, in her own way, but it is an accessible way. It isn't sort of highbrow. Mm -hmm. um, she's more open. She's almost more like, please come like me. You feel that in most of the movies. She just, she just wants to be liked. And wants to be understood, whereas Deanna seems to be like, well, it doesn't matter whether you like me or not. I'm I'm delightful, <laughs> you know, and she is delightful. But there's almost like a tinge of desperation to what Judy Garland does that that makes you want to embrace her. I, I I'm not explaining this well at all, but um, also the tragedy. I mean, you know, everyone wants to save somebody, and just wouldn't it have been great to save her and give her a good life? Yeah kind of similar with like Marilyn Monroe right where it's this sort of um you know tragic beautiful woman exactly I mean but with Judy Garland and Marilyn Monroe there are funny bits and people don't yeah. people don't and same with Edith Piaf because I do a show about her I mean people talk oh, cool. about the tragedy again and again and again but there are also so many funny and interesting and playful bits too and mm -hmm. it's it is a shame that they've been overshadowed mm -hmm. but um Judy Garland was also around a lot. I mean, she was, yeah. you know, everywhere you turned, she was doing a thing or she was in the news. And, and that also, I mean, she was, this, when did she die? Was it 1967 or 1964? It was in the sixties yeah. when she died. And I mean, Deanna Durbin left, I mean, by 1950, she was in Paris, mm -hmm. she was gone. So again, she was, she was out of the public, the public eye a lot sooner also. Right. And then there's Liza Minnelli. So, I mean, yeah. also, you know, if, if there's also like, right, who's her mom? Of course, it's Judy Garland. So, I yeah. mean, there's there's that to kind of also keep you remembering her. Also, she turned it, I mean, she's a gay icon. So, there's also, I right, think yes. if Deanna Durbin had kept performing, she too would have been a gay icon just because <laughs> I, 
I just, I, you know, looking at her, I, I feel like she probably equally would have been, but, but she was gone. You know, this, she didn't fill that role. So yeah, what, totally. did she, what did she kind of do in her later years? Did she, you know, just sort of um, sit at home with her dogs? I mean, yeah, pretty much. I mean, she traveled the world. She went to art galleries. She went to movie premieres in Paris. Um, she sat at home with her dogs. She did <laughs> sing. I mean, she did sing. Neighbors said they could hear her sing. She sang for oh, herself. Her, her son was quite musical. He became a doctor, but, you know, she encouraged him in his music. He would play piano and then she would sing. But I mean, we're talking 60 years. I mean, these were yeah. these were a lot of years. She just yeah. lived a regular life. I think she marketed. She went to the market and bought vegetables. <laughs> she learned to garden. I mean, it just, I, she probably did a lot more than that. Like, to be honest, she probably, they. I think they traveled a lot. They had lots of adventures, but she just reveled in an ordinary life, I think. Yeah, and I guess just, you know, with the money to coast on for the rest of her years, that, that sounds wonderful, actually. <laughs> And she had a lot of people visit her. I mean, a lot of the producers, she knew the directors, they would come and visit her after a while. And so, I mean, she did, she had a very social life. She wasn't a recluse. She just stayed away from Hollywood, basically. Mm -hmm. All the villagers knew that if a reporter came looking to give them wrong information. I mean, oh, her really? entire village sort of protected her. There's one story where a reporter came and then the like owner of the butcher shop or the post office just left and went inside yeah. and they were like, he's not going to come back until you leave. <laughs> What? Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which is no, very, I mean, very sweet. It's very French. Just like, no, no, <laughs> just walk away. Not today. Yeah, no, no. So I mean, and there was another reporter who was, who was given directions to something like 20 miles in the wrong direction. I mean, just like, <laughs> oh, she's over there. So right. it's, it, this is just the whole, part of it was like those stupid Americans. Let's give them bad directions, I think. But, um, yeah, I mean, the whole, I can't believe she was allowed to walk away and stay away. Honestly, there, there were a couple where she now, look how fat she's gotten articles, because oh, there always oh, were. And she actually addressed those at one point. She wrote a letter addressing them, saying, you know, I can still fit. Um, what was it? Um, under the Arc de Triomphe. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm okay. <laughs> Thanks, guys. That's a really funny response to that. <laughs> and, and at one point, I think it was 1980, she actually had her husband take a snapshot of her. Just like it's a totally casual photograph and sent it to the newspaper because it had been 30 years to say like, look, here I am. And but otherwise, that was that was basically it. Wow. But she corresponded regularly with some of her fans. She even told them when she moved, she told them her new address. So oh, especially wow. after her husband died. I mean, she lived a decade and a half after he died. And she she did take comfort in talking to these fans who had basically waited for 50 years. I mean, they had waited for her and to come back or to to acknowledge them and, and she did build relationships with her fans which is beautiful well when she passed away too it was actually a fan group of hers that started in winnipeg that like announced her death to the world it was the deanna durbin uh devotees it was her so her son told them and they told the world so again it was it was staying out of the press. I mean, it got all over the press, obviously, but I mean, sure. yeah, there was such a personal relationship with her fandom that that even her death was announced through them. It became her family in the end, which is interesting that, you know, a family essentially built as a child that she tried to escape. It came back in the end of her life when she needed it, which was kind mm -hmm. of lovely. It yeah. sounds like near the end too, it had simmered to a slightly more respectful and less crazed level of fandom than she had maybe <laughs> had when she was a teenager 
Well, yeah, I mean, a lot of them yeah. died. <laughs> yes. Also, that. Yeah. Also, it's a numbers game. There weren't that many left. Yeah. But right. I guess yeah. the people who kind of hang on that long are probably more like sort of pen pals at that point, right? Well, exactly. And she she didn't have a secretary. She typed. She like one finger typed the letters herself <laughs> to them. Oh. So I mean, you know, she at one point she sort of wrote a, wrote a letter to the fan club saying, "I'm sorry, I'm not going to be able to personally answer things anymore. I just don't have time." But that didn't last. I think she really did miss them, and then she, and then she went back to them oh. pretty quickly. But no, it, they became her community in the end, which in a way is kind of lovely. Yeah. No, I I really like the story of Deanna Durbin. It's a it's nice, and I feel like we don't get a lot of those all the time. Well, this is the thing. Everyone's. I mean, I've heard from a few people who are like super fans, and they you know they're like, well, what about the salacious this and that? I'm like, but there really isn't much. I mean, there right. really isn't i mean there's there's the potential drama around her child's paternity maybe but also again that was all rumors that aside mm -hmm. from that she was just a person doing a job exceptionally well <laughs> you know that so well that she caught the imagination and dreams of of several generations of people around the world i mean that's there is no big drama to her life aside from just her life Yeah, it's a, it's a change for us to have a nice story, I feel like. <laughs> but it's also nice that she got to live happily ever after because yeah. Judy worked so hard and like her childhood was ruined and her young adulthood was ruined. And, and you know, she never got to just sit back and say, look how much everyone loves me. Look how much I did. Mm -hmm. Because it was, she just, she didn't, maybe she wasn't able to, she just, it just never happened. But Deanna got to watch after she left how many people loved her and how her movies were played and played and and uh, you know just the love the world had for her and she got to live her life so you know yeah she, i mean there were some dramas you know she wasn't treated in the end you know she didn't leave on the best terms that probably wasn't the best way to leave hollywood but if that's the worst thing that happens to a star i mean she had she had a pretty good life yeah she said i mean she she happily says she had a pretty good life um no, I was gonna ask, really do you fun. have a favorite deanna durbin movie my favorite Deanna Durbin movie is it started with Eve with Charles Lawton. Charles Lawton, again, was one of the most famous actors of the time. Nobody remembers him, but he was an exceptionally, he was just an amazing actor. He was in Mutiny on the Bounty. He was pretty young. He dresses up like an old sick man in this. And like, he's just <laughs> chewing the scenery. I mean, he is just, I mean, he was supposed to be a co-star. And I mean, it was basically agreed that he stole the show. But the oh, two of them together, just the two of them together are just acting each other like, like they're <laughs> almost out acting each other. I mean, it's just, it's delightful. Deanna was old enough at this point. She she was a very self-possessed young woman. This was, so she wasn't a child at this point, but the, it's watching two amazing actors both just act like crazy, basically, <laughs> and the co-stars are just like, what's going on? I mean, so that is a beautiful movie. A Hundred Men and a Girl that movie just it shows why she was such a star that was her second movie that was sort of the movie that secured her fame she did you know fly to stardom with her first movie but but this one basically this secured the rest of her career it showed that it wasn't just a one-hit wonder and it's a beautiful movie just if you've watched a lot of movies from the mid-1930s a lot of them seem to be adapted from broadway stage plays or that idea where there is several unimportant characters that with stories that don't really go anywhere. And like, <laughs> this one has a plot. It has an arc. Like there's a beginning, a middle and an end. There's not like 40 minutes of randomness that, does, that doesn't need to be there. 
just it's it's such a well done movie and it's it's just it's a beautiful film so i would say 100 men and a girl but it started with eve is just it's just kind of a delight so i'd say those two awesome thank you i watched um a christmas holiday earlier that's today an interesting movie i like gene kelly and i was curious to see what he would be like not in a musical well it was one of his first movies ever. yeah he's young and he's a he's a murderer in it and i'm like yeah. are you cute you're so bad gene come on <laughs> i was telling me so bad <laughs> It's a bit where he kind of has like some fake stubble on. I was <laughs> like, oh, you look like a baby. I know. He's just like, you're adorable. But no, that that movie, um, it made more money at the time. It made more money than all of her other movies. And it it was oh, wow. when she wanted to be a serious actress. And it's it was supposed to be set in a brothel, but um the Hayes Code, which didn't allow things that were morally corrupt, said it couldn't. But then they, I mean, it's clearly a brothel. It's they got clearly around. a brothel. It's clearly it's so a brothel. Clearly a brothel. <laughs> yeah, she's clearly a prostitute. Um, but they, they, they said she was a nightclub singer. So it's just this is <laughs> the first one where they very much. It's a nightclub yeah. singer in a lounge full of other nightclub singers. <laughs> right. It's just it's 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 interesting how they totally thwarted the Hayes Code on this. Yeah. But also, it's it's interesting in a lot of ways. She wanted to be a serious actress. There's one scene where Gail Sondergaard, her co-star, slaps her face. It's a real slap. They did it oh, like it looks like it hurt. It. Yeah, no, it did. And they did it several times, and then they did it for the, the the stills. They did it for the photographs too. So she just spent the whole day slapping, slapped. <laughs> um, so I mean, it's it's an it's a bit of a hard film to watch because it's like something please happen. Nothing happens for long periods of time. But um, it's it's certainly a film, all right. It is. It's not my favorite, but it's like <laughs> certainly a film. And I've been telling Alex before we started recording, too, that I was surprised that D Gene Kelly didn't burst into like a needlessly long tap dancing sequence because most of his movies have that later on. No. But I mean, why would... They, and the, the studio didn't own him. They borrowed him from another studio for this. Like, they... There was no reason for him to be in this film. Like it, it did not <laughs> make like not any dancing. sense. Yeah, no, it made no sense. I mean, he was a he was a cheerful dancer from the start. That's how he got hired. And they're like, "How about you're a murderer? Yay!" <laughs> like no dancing, just, also. It just it made it made no that whole movie made no sense. Um, <laughs> it's an interesting I, watch if you know anything about old movies, I guess, or you want to see a very young Gene Kelly try and be ominous. The second time when I had no expectations was better. Like the first time I watched the movie, I'm like, what's happening? And the, it was one of the last ones I watched. Yeah. Um, and then the second watch I had of it, I was like, okay, okay, it's it's actually not that bad. <laughs> so, um, but most of her movies are good. There's only a couple yeah. that, that aren't. And this one was just weird, I guess. It's not bad. It was just a very- No, I didn't hate watching it. It was confusing, but like I've seen way worse. Phew, that's good. We watched a Gene. We watched a movie where Gene Kelly has an extended dance number with Tom and Jerry. So that's oh, that's Anchors Away. Anchors Away. Thank you. Nice. Um, and that's a confusing movie to watch. So I've not. I haven't. I mean, I've heard of that, but I haven't seen it. Um, at least He's it wasn't explaining a to like some orphans about how he taught some like foreign nation the magic of dance, and the foreign <laughs> nation's Tom and Jerry. Oh. Okay, then history. Okay, I, mean, I don't, I don't know what I was getting to there, but just that old movies sometimes are confusing. <laughs> I watched one recently, and it's, I mean, it's problematic today. It's called Margie, and it's about a girl who falls in love with her much older teacher. She's oh. like in high school. They end up married. Uh, <laughs> I'm just yeah. like, 
Yeah, that's not how that movie would end today. Is that not like Daddy Long Legs, which is a very similar thing where a woman falls in love with like her older patron? But they don't meet. This is the thing. Daddy Long Legs, the book was written, I believe, in 18, I think it was 1891. Um, Weird that I, okay, I'm not 100% sure on the date, but it was the late 1800s and she wrote letters to him. So, I mean, at least they didn't meet meet in person, but yes. And I believe she might have been of age, but maybe she's like 15. <laughs> You're right. Yes. The answer is yes. Yes. It's old very movies. much like Daddy Longlegs. Old movies. Old books. Yeah. <laughs> They're confusing and fun. Confusing and fun. And you have to take them in the context of the time totally, they were made. Yeah. Although Gene Kelly as a murderer... At the time, people were confused. Like, seriously, if you read the, the reviews, they're like, why? <laughs> I mean, it's a cold Christmas holiday, and there's nothing about Christmas no, in it. Also- it does make it sound like it's going to be, like, holiday in <laughs> or late Christmas, but, like, it's barely Christmas. There's a guy's on the holiday for Christmas, and then a bunch of murder stuff happens. <laughs> yeah, like, they go to Midnight Mass, and there's which is Christmas Mass, yep. and then it's Christmas, and I think there's some decorations in the brothel. Like, that's it, and then murder. <laughs> so and then a giant flag just watch the movie if you guys if you haven't watched the movie but don't make it your first Deanna Durbin movie or you'll be like why <laughs> yeah so watch it but don't judge Diana Dur- Deanna Durbin by this particular film <laughs> exactly yeah. exactly please don't so thank you so much uh Melanie where can people find you and your book if they want to learn uh more about Durbin or um, any of your other music listen to your knitting songs oh. I'm everywhere. I guess I have a webpage like Mel. It's melaniegall.com. I'm on Twitter under Melanie Presents, and same with Instagram. I'm hopefully doing a book event in Winnipeg later in the fall. I still need to figure that out. Um, but I'm the book's available everywhere. It's called Judy Garland, or shoot, Deanna Durbin, Judy Garland, and the Golden Age of Hollywood. It's at all the bookstores. So just um, it's at all it's at all the bookstores. It's on Amazon. It's it's all over. Okay, perfect. Thank you so much. It was great to have you on. Yeah, you too. Thank you. Hey, thank you so much for listening. You can check out our website for uh, more episode sources, where to buy the book. You can follow us on social media at Facebook and Instagram at One Great History. We are on Twitter at the number one great history. You can support the show on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash one great history. For $5 a month, you get all kinds of fun things like bonus episodes and Ginger Snooks news clippings. And all of the funds help us uh, put the show on streaming, buy our research materials. I had to buy a book for this episode again. Oh, man. Which it was, it was fine. It was a good book. I liked reading it. But it helps us out a lot. And uh, this month's bonus episode is about the Grand Beach Carousel. And it actually cool. has a kind of Deanna Durbin tie-in. Oh. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.